Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 150. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back. I am so glad you're here, especially this week. We've got an incredible guest, Dr. Mira Bihari. Hopefully I said that close enough. She is an adolescent medicine specialist, which means she knows how to talk to young people, (laughs) especially about difficult things, anxiety, depression, ADHD, reproductive health, eating disorders, all the stuff that is difficult to talk about. And she's here to talk about what is happening to youth ages 10 to 25, what's really going on, how we really can be supportive, have real and honest conversations. And she is an incredible resource. She is available for televisits. All that information is going to be talked about. The information about her, how to contact her, how to sign up with her practice is in the episode description. And please know, I don't get anything from this other than the opportunity to talk about her, hear what she's worried about, share what I'm worried about, especially this year in 2022. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of unrest at every age. And here she's here to help us do better, think differently, have better conversations, more effective conversations with people that we love. So enjoy the episode. And I'll see you next time. I am sending so much love for our journey of this human experience. Ciao. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Mira Bahari, excited for a number of reasons. She specializes in an area that is so important, so essential, and not spoken about enough these days, which is what is happening with within our younger population, ages 10 to 25, what's really going on? What are the concerns? She's going to shine a light because she is a physician and a specialist in this medicine. She's also a super cool person published in the academic world. She is a sailor. There's a lot of beautiful qualities to her. And today she is our expert. I'm so glad that you're here. So that's how I'd introduce you. How would you introduce (laughs) me? Thank you, Dina. That's an awesome introduction. I love it. And I think you are also a a fabulous person. I'm so glad we met through ACE. To tell you a little bit about myself, my name is Mira Bihari. I am an adolescent medicine specialist, aka hebeatrician. I help young people, teenagers, and adolescents navigate the often turbulent waters of adolescence. I own a small consultative concierge practice in which I see young people ages 10 to 25 and help them through some of the challenges with adolescent development. So common things that I see are issues with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, academic or behavioral problems. And I really am grateful for this opportunity to talk about my specialty, which apparently is not as well known as I thought it was, and also the challenges facing young people today. And for anyone listening, Dr. Bahari not only is a pediatrician, but she has fellowship training specifically in adolescent medicine to really narrow and focus in on that practice. The reason for this conversation is because I'm worried. 
Mm. I see what's happening in in this country and I see what's happening to younger people and I'm worried. And what I hear a lot from adults is why aren't they more resilient? Why did their parents coddle them? Lots of excuses or lots of blaming and shaming. And we know that things aren't getting better right now. So I'd love your perspective. Let's start with mental health. Yes, you're absolutely right that things are seemingly a lot worse. And I'm not sure how much of that is that they are actually worse or we just have the opportunity to really look at it and we're doing the research and we're talking about it. I'm a silver linings kind of person. So I think one of the silver linings of the very difficult past couple of years of pandemic has been that we are now talking about mental health more. To share a little quote that I heard somewhere along the way, if before the pandemic, three out of five people had mental health struggles. Now it's five out of five people. We've all had some sort of challenge over the past couple of years, an increase in anxiety, depression. And I think now we have the chance to talk about it and really help young people. And I think they are more vocal about it than previous generations have been. Before the pandemic, we knew that about 20% of young people, depending on the study read, 20, sometimes up to 30% of young people experience some anxiety and depression during their teenage years. Having had the loss of normal developmental milestones, graduation, prom, just all of the little things that make up teenage life going on, that's added an extra stressor for young people. There's also an opportunity for resilience if we look at that, like they have come through all of these challenges and a lot of the coping skills that they have are what they get from the people around them. So for a lot of young people, if they're in an environment where they have a variety of different coping styles, they might be able to manage. But if, as happened for most of us, we were at the end of our coping skills, then that made it harder for the young people to deal with everything they needed to. The way I think about it is when we were younger, certainly when I was a teenager, there was a lot of stuff going on. It's part of why I do adolescent medicine. I grew up in the 90s in a suburb of New York City. And there were issues with gang violence. There was the HIV epidemic. There was significant amounts of teen pregnancy in, in my area. And because we had a variety of social supports, whether it was our parents and for me, my drama teachers and after school programs and arts and the actual teachers and religious leaders and all of these things, that helped. But during the pandemic, all of those things went away for a lot of young people. They weren't going to in-person school. They couldn't go to religious services the way that they could have before. Some places did online, still not the same. And a lot of parents had additional struggles. People lost jobs, people weren't going to work. So I think that's where we've seen a lot more of it nowadays. That's the struggle where we are. Can we just dispel the myth that they're not resilient enough? Oh my gosh, <laughs> who is resilient enough to deal with everything that, that has been thrown at us? And I really do think that they are resilient and doing the best they can with the resources they have. What we know from brain development is that young people are in a more 
amygdala-focused part of their development or amygdala-driven part of their development, to put it that way. So they're more emotional and more responsive when there are things that are stressful for them. And their prefrontal cortex, that part of their brain that says, oh, this is a good decision, this is a bad decision, hold on a minute, let's analyze this a little bit more, that part is still developing. So I think, you know, they are resilient. They're just dealing with so much more than we did at that phase of life. There was no social media. There was no having to look at yourself. Can you imagine having to look at yourself all day while you're trying to learn something that's really difficult? The whole all online Zoom classes 24-7. That's <laughs> not literally 24-7. That's how it feels for these kids. They were just staring at themselves and trying to learn and socialize and do all of these normal tasks. I think they've done remarkably well under these stressors. Yeah. And I offer that because blaming, shaming, pointing oh, yeah. fingers and telling people they're wrong, their <laughs> youth, whether it's parents, like none of that helps. Yeah. And it will never help. We've got to move the conversation to an actual, like one of substance. What I learned at the ACE conference was the burdens that women physicians carry and the heaviness of them and how much or how many of us carry, smile, mm -hmm. so we keep telling ourselves, just yeah. keep going, just keep going, not even acknowledging to ourselves how much is there and how heavy it is until we get into an environment where it's okay to start to open up. I suspect mm -hmm. that's probably similar in the 10 to 25 year range. Yeah, I think so. And I would argue that it actually takes more strength to bare your soul and say, hey, I am struggling right now and I can't do this. The whole pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing, that works if you've got bootstraps. But when we think about it, these kids, they're at a phase where they should be learning how to cope with peer pressure and stressors and all of these different things. And we took that away from them. So we took away that developmentally appropriate step and are asking them to do so much more. So I think it's great that they are saying that they need help and they are asking for it and hopefully not acting out. Or if they are acting out, that might be their way of asking for help. So what comes up for me when I hear took away is picturing that nothing else replaced it. So we've got this void on somebody who's got a brain that's still forming yeah. and we're not giving structure or guiding the process. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think in all fairness to ourselves, the pandemic just took everything away and thank goodness for things like Zoom and phones. I don't know what they did in 1918. The only thing I can think of is that back then, families were larger and people lived in these extended family networks and now we're more nuclear families and separate. So that might've helped with some of the loneliness I think that everyone felt at all ages during the pandemic at one point or another. So yeah, we took away that developmental milestone. The pandemic took away those social interactions and we couldn't safely replace it with something else. And sometimes when kids tried to replace it on their own, when they tried to replace it with the online video games where they can chat with friends and everything, some of the older generations didn't understand why they were on that platform rather than acting with the adults in their life. But 
if we all take a moment and think about this, what were you like when you were 13? Did you want to hang out with the older adults in your family? Did you want to talk to grandma and grandpa all the time? Yes, of course, a bit, but all the time. Your friends are supposed to be the primary focus. You're supposed to learn that common interaction for your peer group and make those bonds. Yeah. It's, so how do we open conversations? How do we as adults open conversations on that, what's important, what matters when it comes to a, shedding a light on where somebody's at with mood, either stable mood or depression, anxiety, or something else? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think a lot of it depends on what it is that you're seeing and the level of acuity needed. Obviously, if someone is harming themselves or threatening to harm themselves, that's a do not stop it, go get emergency services right away. And if we're just seeing some changes and you're wondering or just want to check in, for a lot of young people, it's easier to check in when we have this sort of time limited place where they're not making direct eye contact. So a lot of times driving to and from school or an activity or something like that, where they know they, okay, they can say whatever. And then five, 10 minutes, if they want to, they can stay in the car a little bit longer or they can gracefully exit. Opening up a conversation with maybe, oh, the song on the radio that they like. What do you like about that song? What makes you interested in that group? If they're wearing like certain things that give you a clue that they might be a little bit more anxious or depressed listening to those sad songs. We're just saying, hey, I got really stressed and anxious during the pandemic and I had problems coping. How have you been dealing with that? And how have your friends been dealing with some of these stressors out there? And the first like three times you ask them, they might be like, I don't know, and shrug it off. And you can offer something that you did and just remind them that you're there if they need any help and that you can also connect them with someone if they or any of their friends need any help. I think a lot of times for the younger kids, it's easier to talk about other people than necessarily themselves saying, hey, I haven't seen you talk to Tina in a while. How's that relationship going? Is she okay? Or is her family okay? And they sometimes don't even know to check in. That's one of the things that kids are so focused on text messages and all of these things that they might need a little nudge to have that in-person gathering or invite somebody over to the house for dinner kind of thing. So those are some of the breaks. Yeah. Yeah. This stuff is tough. Thank you for being here. This stuff is tough <laughs> because as a parent at times, sometimes more than others, it can feel like no matter what I say, it either isn't getting through or it's the wrong thing. And so easy for the receiver or for the youth to turn off, turn away. Yeah. And that might be a situation where a parent could use text message to say, hey, checking in on how you're doing or opening it up like you're getting older. I'm not sure what's going on with you right now, but I do want to check in and I want us to change our relationship from parent and guardian to parent and a friendship where we can communicate openly about X, Y, and Z issues and letting them know that, hey, I get that there's some things that you can't talk to me about as your parent or don't feel comfortable talking to me about as your parent, but I hope that you'll reach out to 
your pediatrician, your aunt, your grandma, whoever it is that they might have a bond with an older sibling and just let us know if you do need any help and support and that I'm here for you if you need that. Yeah. I could see that spending time where like spending time on an activity or Mm -hmm. going for a walk or playing a game or doing these things is just a gentle way to, to drip some questions in without having to solve. This is what I've right. learned about me is I like to solve problems mm-hmm. and I like to point out problems people didn't know were there. Yes. It doesn't work well. <laughs> it does not build relationships. So what I've learned, what I've started doing, what I'm practicing is to ask questions to find out what the other person is experiencing and not assume there's a problem there. I think that's great. And I think it's a lot of us, especially as physicians, we've always been the fixer and we know an answer, what we think is the answer, but it might not be that person's answer in that moment. For sure. And which really speaks to meeting somebody where they're at. We got to know where they're at. Yes. And I love that you bring that point up because a lot of times we see things as from the outside that the young person isn't seeing themselves. And it might be that they're just going through their ups and downs with hormones and relationships and what have you, but we want to check in. We want to make sure this doesn't like snowball and turn into crisis. So I feel like teens need some feedback to know what they're putting out there sometimes. And just saying something like, I noticed that you've been staying in your room a lot more just want to make sure that everything's okay. Let me know if you need to talk. And just opening that door. I'll be like, no, I don't need to talk. But just, it's there, that door. Okay, glad to hear it. Go on about everything and just making sure that you're there and <laughs> available if needed. One of the other things that I found fascinating is there was some research a while back that showed that teenagers, when they're looking at adult faces, when we look worried, they actually think that we look angry at them. And so when they think that you're angry, of course, they're going to go into defensive mode and fight or flight response and all of that. And then they come back at you with a little bit of attitude and snark. And then that kicks you into like parent mode. And I need to have a different way of you communicating. And that spills in sometimes into a whole different cycle. So recognizing that we need to sometimes clarify verbally that I'm worried about you. And yes, I know that I'm also scared and it might look like I'm angry at you. I am concerned about X, Y, and Z and really labeling those feelings and making that part of the normal conversation. Oh, and you bring up a really good point too, which is I remember assessing the scene as I'm walking into the room, I'm listening, looking at facial expressions, body posture, and positioning myself for how close or far away I'm going to get, or for what I'm going to say, even before a word was spoken. So I remember that. And I think to build on what you're saying too, is when it's not about them, mm-hmm. that's probably a great time to say this worry, this, what I'm feeling has nothing to do with you. Yeah, Because we, man, I know I carry a whole bunch of stuff in my emotional backpack that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the people I love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think as unfortunate as some world events have been and, and recent events in our country have been, I think using that as an opportunity to talk about things like 
what would you do if you were worried about somebody else's mental health in your class or in your social circle and you thought that they might do something to harm themselves or to harm others? Difficult conversations for sure. And now I'm glad that we have the 988 number. It's much easier to remember than the suicide hotline number was before. Say more about that. Oh, so yeah, the suicide hotline number just this past weekend, it changed from I'm going to slightly mess up. I'm 90% sure it was 1-800-273-TALK, but now it's 988. So all you have to remember is instead of 911, if we're feeling that you're, if you're feeling that you're going to hurt yourself or kill yourself, you can call 988 and get connected to the suicide hotline number that way. Much easier to remember. That's any person here in the U.S. Any person here in the U.S., any age. And that is something that is, I think, hopefully going to help people access care a lot easier. And free. Free. Yeah. Confidential. And for young people who like to text, they've had for a long time text options as well. Nice. Yeah. I think this is a great time to talk about your practice because you are an amazing resource and you're Thank you. <laughs> available to see via telehealth or virtual visits, New York, Texas, Florida. And you talk about who can access, how they access, why this practice exists. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the practice. We are just officially about a year old, but in actuality, only six months-ish old because of how long it takes to get things started up. And I started this practice because I recognized that we needed to be more accessible as adolescent medicine specialists to our patients. And the logistics of calling for an appointment, scheduling time off of school and work for a parent, for a child, for everybody, arranging childcare for your other kids makes it another barrier to accessing care. So if someone wants to see me in my practice, they can call 254-541-8158, or they can go on the website and shoot me a message and we'll start all the process of setting up an appointment. And we can actually start an appointment and a patient can register directly off the website through the patient portal I have. And really a teen can access care themselves or and adults can sign them up. I currently don't accept any insurance. And that's because for me, that was yet another barrier to patients getting in and needing a referral to see a specialist and all of these things. So if folks want to talk to me, they can just call and we'll do a 15 minute free conversation and decide if this is a right fit. And I think during the pandemic, that was another opportunity that let me germinate this idea that had been in the back of my head that we could do this via telemedicine, because most of what we do in adolescent medicine is a lot of biopsychosocial approach where we are doing a physical assessment, but we're also looking at the young person's social environment. Are they in a place where they have all the resources they need? What are they doing in terms of their mental health care? Are they sleeping and eating regularly? Are they socializing and all of these wonderful things? And a lot of that can be done via telemed. Um, during the pandemic, when I was in a large hospital system, mine were some of the RVUs that didn't actually go down because most of my patients could still get the same level of care. I can still do an ADHD check 
via telemedicine <laughs> as well as I could in the office. And I was also surprised by how many people had blood pressure cuffs at home already. So many people who were just checking the blood pressure, doing the pulse and heart. And I was like, all right, that works for me. Let's continue on the med, change the dose, whatever we need to do. So a parent can sign up for a call if they have concerns. Absolutely. Anyone, is it anyone 10 to 25 can sign up for, with, for a call if they have concerns? They can, yes. Obviously, with the younger age groups in certain states, we might need to get a parent's permission before we have an actual visit. And the payment question, most 10-year-olds aren't walking around with a method of payment, nor should they be. But those are some of the things that we sort out together. Because the main thing is getting care, breaking down the access barriers. And everyone needs to hear that you, what you cover is so essential it's so tender as well. So you mentioned anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. eating disorders. What we haven't talked about are reproductive health. Yes. Ooh. Obviously, some of that is a little bit harder to do over telemed, but partnering with the primary care doctor as much as I can if somebody does need more testing or an exam. But yeah, the reproductive health question is definitely huge. There are a lot of young people who have questions that aren't being answered in either their home environment, in part because their home environment never had discussions about that and the education about what's normal and what's pathologic, or they're not getting that education in school. Obviously, during the pandemic, it was not priority to do the standard health ed classes and things like that. Some kids got that, some kids didn't. And we can certainly break down some of those barriers and provide care via telemed and do a consultation and work with their primary care doctor to get labs and any other things that we might need to make a decision. And having conversations before they're needed. Oh gosh. Yes. (laughs) Important and honest conversations about what's really happening. Yes. That's how we empower. Yes. Absolutely. And for thinking back to my own inspiration to become an adolescent medicine specialist, there I was with my little teenage self, just going through puberty and the HIV pandemic is breaking. And of course, New York City was like super ground zero for a lot of that. And there was so much fear at that point before we knew how things were spread. I mean, if we really think back to it, people were worried, can you get this off of a toilet seat? Can you get this if you're like at a basketball game with somebody and they get a cut? All of these things. And I remember in high school, you can donate blood at a certain age. And there were kids who would go to donate blood. And that's how they found out that they were HIV positive. And our school at the time, because of administration and the rules back then, again, the 90s, they could not distribute condoms through the school. They couldn't talk about it or do anything. And I'm like, we know how to prevent this. We know it's a problem in this community. Why can't we do these things and like actually help young people and meet them where they're at? So I always think about even if you're not doing something, you can help teach somebody else in your peer group that I'm never going to see because they can't access me. Their parents won't be able to get them to a visit. They don't have good internet, whatever it might be. So there's tons of reasons why we need to talk to every child about this, because you never know what situation your young person's going to be in. And they might not actually be at risk themselves, but they might be able to help somebody else who's at risk. And don't we want our kids to be the helpers and really make the world a better place? 
if they can. True. Like we think we know what we know what's going on in their mind. We think we know everything that they've picked up, all the messages, but there's so many messages out there. And the peer influence may or may not be healthy for the individual. When I think about like when I think about what would be helpful at for me as a parent, what could I do? What could I encourage that I think would be helpful? And what comes up is creating an environment where there is no need for pretending and there's Mm. no need for hiding, where there's honesty about what's really happening under the surface and open conversation without the intent to fix the individual. What are your thoughts? Oh, I love that. I love that. So you're reminding me of one of the things that I often say to my patients. All I ask is honesty and effort. That's it. Honesty and effort, (laughs) you know, and if they don't want to go on the same recovery journey that their parents or I think they should be on, let me know. And we'll try a different way of approaching things. We'll try a different tack. But if I don't know that and I'm like going on and talking about things and think they're in one place, then that's not a good use of anybody's time and resources. There's so many times in taking care of adults that why doesn't this medicine work? Let's try this one. That one doesn't work. And they're not taking it. There was pretending and hiding. Yes. And it feels so bad for on both sides. Yeah. It feels bad. It does. It does. Yeah. And it happens a lot with teens too. One of the other areas that I I didn't really talk much about that I really enjoy working with is young people with chronic medical problems. So lupus, diabetes, all of these things. And, you know, when you think about just how hard it is to be a teenager and then you throw in something that affects every single second of your day, type one diabetes or lupus. And These kids have so much resilience to go back to that and they try and they're trying to fit in with their peers and they're trying to follow the parents' rules and all of these things. And a lot of young people, especially if they were diagnosed really young, they don't understand why they're taking their medication. So sometimes they'll stop because they're rebelling against their parents. They're like, oh, I'm not doing what you told me to do. And they equate it to the same as picking up their room or something, not recognizing that this is potentially life-threatening and parents not thinking that they don't understand that because this is how it's always been. But I'm like, if you've always been doing something since you're five, you don't know that you have to do it unless somebody sits down and explains to them, hey, your pancreas isn't working very well. So we need to give you some insulin to make up for that lack of function in your pancreas so you don't end up in the hospital. It's really fascinating to me how many kids are on medications and they're not sure why. And no one ever sat down to them and explain to them after they were old enough to understand what their medical condition is, why they need to take the medication, how they access emergency services, what to call us for, what is an emergency. So I really enjoy that transition piece and that work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to mood disorders, eating disorders, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to mention that not a pill is not the answer every time. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I like to refer to my practice as more holistic because I fully embrace all the other things that can help with mood. And a lot of it is 
adding in some support and structure and boundaries to your day and having a little bit more routine for some young people stopping and not overdoing everything or in some cases actually venturing out and trying something new. So really looking at their environment, really looking at what all can be contributing to different changes in mood. And as a physician, I have had this happen on more than one occasion that I'm referred a patient and they are referred for anxiety or depression. And I do vitamin D screen, vitamin D levels low, get them on some vitamin D, mood is better. Or thyroid screen, having some thyroiditis and we could easily have put them on Prozac or Zoloft and had them carry on with that. But if we didn't check, we could have missed something else that needed to be treated and certainly showed up this way, maybe not completely classical presentation. So what I think is so interesting as I, I think about it is the goal is to go from those who are feel like they're barely living or maybe just surviving, mm-hmm. maybe they feel like they're living, to truly experience being alive. Yes. The, yes. the value of their life, the gift of their life, the opportunity of their life to get that feeling like they're on top of the world because it is available and there's not one answer to get there. There's probably yes. several answers and trial to figure mm-hmm. out what being fully alive is in the healthiest way. I love it. I love it. And that's part of why I chose the name for my practice as Healthy Horizons Hebiatrics, because I really feel that wherever anyone is, but especially young people, wherever they are, there is a bigger, wider world out there. And we have to show them that in little bits and maybe broaden their horizons and show them that, yeah, okay, because this is what you've seen or read about how things go with anxiety or depression or an eating disorder doesn't mean it has to be that way for you. You can totally change things. And that's the advantage of the developing brain, right? Like the patterns aren't fused at this age. So if we can really help a young person in their teenage years, we're preventing problems later on, which is the other reason why I got into adolescent medicine. So during my internal medicine rotation, realized that everybody that I asked about when they started smoking, their answer was like 12, 13, 14, 15. I never heard of someone who started smoking at 40. And I realized if we really work to optimize their health at this phase of life, we're setting them up for success long after I'm retired and gone from (laughs) this world. Because you're taking out the need. This answers a need. Yes. Yes. I love that. If the need isn't there, then nobody is going to go looking for it. Talking to somebody recently, you were like, if you walk by a picnic bench and there's a carton of cigarettes, are you going to pick it up and start smoking? They're like, no, why would I don't want to destroy what I have. So if we help people see what they have, help them assess for where the needs are, what isn't quite right, what doesn't feel good and have conversations around it. It's great if there's no need. Yeah. I love that. You're reminding me of something my mentor, Dr. McKenzie said to me. What we see as a problem for the teenagers, they see as a solution. So the cigarette smoking, the staying out all night, the drinking, the whatever it might be, we see it as a problem, but for them, it's a solution to something. And if we find out what problem that's solving and really work on the core problem, 
then we can have healthier behaviors and a healthier life moving forward. Yeah, totally. Totally. I love that. I love this. <laughs> we are totally on the same page. Love it. So two questions and they're opposites. So let's start with this one. Okay. What worries you? Ooh, that's a great one. Like in general or about teenagers? <laughs> uh, about this age range. Oh, I think what worries me is that we still pathologize this age, that it's still teenagers are trouble, teenagers are doing this. Instead of recognizing them for what they are, they are our greatest natural resource, plus water. <laughs> they are our greatest natural resource, and we need to do everything we can to help them grow and develop in the best way possible. Wait, I didn't hear a worry in that. I guess the worry is that we're seeing them as pathology, that we're seeing them as trouble instead of seeing them as the wonderful human beings that they are and really developing their talents and strengths, which also gets me to like the whole school thing. I am worried about like schools in that they, I wish the schools had all the resources that we could to help develop young people to their fullest. So a proper lunchtime, snacks, a later start time for teenagers. We know biologically that they are not set up to be up at six o'clock in the morning, that their biologic clock, their circadian rhythm has them winding down at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning and not fully awake until nine or 10, which is why all of us didn't want to take an 8 a.m. class in college. And having a real humanities education, I was very involved in acting and drama in my high school years with a group outside of the school. And my drama teacher, Tina Satin, said something that I thought was brilliant. She said many things that I thought were brilliant, but this is one that's relevant, is when they took prayer out of the schools, they didn't replace it with anything. And I was fortunate that I was in a humanities program and I had the arts and I love that she referred to acting as a divine craft because I think it really is to fully understand another human being and what they might be going through. I think that is a divine gift, but we didn't replace it. And so many schools have very limited arts and humanities offerings and are so focused on the things that will help people get some of these more high paying jobs and careers instead of understanding that all of these things are needed and wonderful to have a full human life. Hmm. So good. It, it makes me think like I didn't grow up learning about poetry. Hmm. I, there was no poetry in our house except for Shel Silverstein, which is very oh. good. Yes. And I have a book now of poetry. And I don't understand a whole lot of it, but I like to see how the words play with each other in ways that don't come natural or intuitive to me. And to have that opportunity at a younger age to just see it as playful and fun and whatever yeah. you get for, from it is right because there's mm -hmm. no right or wrong. That would yes. be a lot of fun. Yes, I love that. I worry. Everything has to be success-oriented instead of experience-oriented. All right. So let's flip it. What gives you hope? That they care, <laughs> you know, that there is so much communication and connection and opportunities to use all of the things that we have to 
really share their experience and talk about it, whether it's a TikTok, whether it's going on Discord or whether it's drawing or doing something. I think there are so many ways that people can express themselves now that it's just a matter of allowing that space. I think the other thing that gives me hope is that there are finally still not enough, but there are more adolescent medicine providers out there. In the history of adolescent medicine as a board certified specialty, there's only been a thousand of us in the entire United States. And we figure there's 750 of us maybe practicing at any given time. Some people have retired and moved on and all that. So there are supports, not enough, but we're building more and we're having these conversations and there are ways for young people to access care and support independently, as well as with their families if needed. So here's what worries me. I think it's underestimated the number of young people who are walking around thinking that they're better off dead. Life isn't worth it. They've already experienced everything they want to experience. Walking on that border of let's end, it's time to go. It's time to change, mm-hmm. time to end this life than we possibly know. And we don't have enough ways of reaching in to speak to that. I agree. It's not enough. It's more than it was. Not enough still. And I, to borrow some phrases from other programs and cultures, each one teach one. And I think we all, it's imperative that we all talk to the young person who's in front of us and other adults and get them to reach out to young people and check in and really make sure that they're safe and at least be available as best we can. Are we going to prevent everything? Unfortunately, no. I hope to keep working towards that goal, but we've got to do our best and we've got to say that we're here and be that beacon, that lighthouse of hope as best we can. So keep the conversation simple introduce it rather than formal times of sitting down to have the talk, make it everyday conversation, keep repeating it, know that there are resources for both parents and youth, 10 to 25, you are a great resource. And I imagine that if somebody, somebody could reach out to you, even if you're not in a state that they practice, Yes. somebody's afraid or concerned, can they contact you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the great things about that there being so few adolescent medicine people is that we all know each other. So even if I am not in a state where that young person is and I'm not practicing in that state, I can find somebody who can help them. There is hope. Just have to keep looking <laughs> and there is support. What I learned or what I felt at the ACE conference is that at least one life was saved. At least one physician life was saved because we embarked on conversations that were hard, comfortable, Mm. the normal world don't feel safe. Yeah. And I walked away feeling like this was an incredible experience. And what I feel in this conversation is that the bigger picture, the reason we're here is this is about first and foremost, saving lives. Mm-hmm. by opening up conversations, getting real, stopping the hiding. And it's also about shaping lives in a way that is better for the individual. Yes. Oh gosh. I loved the ACE conference. I am looking forward to next year. I wish I did not have the other commitments on my time and I could have done even more with ACE and connections and all of these other things that happened that weekend. But I definitely 
heard what I needed to hear from you and Dr. Latifat. We had a two minute conversation that I was like, whoa, that was like <laughs> mind blown there. Definitely what I needed to hear. So I really hope that I, oh, I'm planning on attending. You just need to tell me the dates <laughs> so, <laughs> so I can block my calendar ahead of time. So to, to flip it over, what gives me hope? I live in the Texas A&M community. Mm -hmm. And when I walk on campus, I have hope. Like I've experienced, I've had young people come up and ask if they can pray with me or pray for oh, me. That gives me hope. I see great. young people playing games like playing football or playing, I don't know, any of the other games, interacting, laughing, like a genuine kind of joy. And that gives me hope. No matter where somebody is at, that isn't where they have to stay. Yes. Harry is a great resource, no matter where you live in the U.S. and particularly New York, Florida, Texas, mm -hmm. she can be your expert, your specialist. And it can be one visit is my understanding if it's mm -hmm. it. And it, yeah. it can be more of it, more than one visit too. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I think that's one of the funnest things about having my own practice is whatever you need, we'll work with you. And if it's a one-time thing, or if you're a pediatrician or a primary care doctor, and you're not sure if a young person would benefit from adolescent medicine, give us a call. We'll find out and talk it through. And there are so many physicians working in underserved communities who can be that resource for them. As Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. Yes. That is one of the things that I want to do a lot more of is what I call e-com consults and record reviews where I don't necessarily need to see the person directly. I can guide you through whatever it is that person needs and help you find the resources in your community. Because, you know, 55 million young people ages 10 to 25 in our country and 750 adolescent medicine docs. That means we're having to see, each one of us would have to see 70 a lot. Like, it's just not enough. 73,000 is what I came out to when I did the math before. Kids, and we're, we can't. So even if we just saw one quarter, that's 18,000 kids on our panel. No, not okay. So we definitely need to partner with our primary care partners and help leverage our expertise. The young person can get the care they need, and we are all doing everything we can to help. So in 2022, it is no longer about excuses. It is no longer about looking in the past. It's not about pointing fingers. It's figuring out where people are at, meeting them there and shaping a future that can look very different and very full of joy and love and freedom and fulfillment. Yes. Yes. I love it. And, and I we think we can't do it alone. No, it definitely takes a village and I am very happy that I have you in my village as one of the people to help amplify this message and help young people in our country. All right. Final thoughts, words of wisdom, anything else? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, I would say talk, keep talking, keep the conversations going. Listen as best you can. Listen with an open heart. and have compassion. TLC is what I call it. Talk about the importance of mental health. Listen when you're with someone genuinely be there 100% and have compassion 
for the other person, but also for yourself. This is not easy. And we're not going to be doing everything to the best possible way all the time. And that's okay. Yes. There is no right or wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's opening the conversation. It's establishing mm-hmm. trust and it's seeking understanding. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Your contact information will be in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you for caring with abundance on this stuff that is hard. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. I appreciate your help and I appreciate your support. I wish you and everyone listening great day. And I look forward to keeping our connection going. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Create clarity and simplicity with all of your marketing so that the people you serve know how you can help them. As a StoryBrand certified guide, I help physicians create this to launch or grow any type of business. Sign up for a consult call with me at georgemdcoaching.com.